to Transpacific Stories, a podcast about the people behind the scholarship. My guest on this episode is Robert Diaz. Robert is an assistant professor in the Women and Gender Studies Institute at the University of Toronto. His research, teaching, and community work focus on the intersections of Asian diaspora, postcolonial, and queer studies. I had a chance to chat with Robert in Vancouver about his childhood growing up in the Philippines, coming out while attending a Jesuit high school, moving to the United States and later to Canada, negotiating legal residency statuses in three countries, and what home means to him personally and intellectually. So I'm delighted to have on the podcast today, Robert Diaz. Welcome, Robert. <laughs> really excited to have a conversation. Um, so it's just really fun to have people visit us in Vancouver. I love um, visiting Vancouver. I also love seeing the folks here. And I just, yeah, no, I think spaces are made out of people as much as the places themselves. Mm-hmm. And so That's good, so you should keep coming back. <laughs> sincerely hope I do. <laughs> so I am just curious, like, where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in the Philippines. I was born in Cabanatuan City. Cabanatuan City is around two hours. It's it's a province um, that's actually famous. So Nueva Ecija, the, the province where the city is from, um, or is based, is, is a, it's kind of the, the place where a lot of the rices is made, right? Uh-huh. Like, so it's grown. And so, um, so it's a... It's it's a you know it's a province that has significance in the Philippines. Um, Tagalog, right, mm-hmm. they say, originated from this area. Oh, because it's um t- Tagalog is Tagailog, which means like it's uh, from the river. But it's actually like this area has really um, like deep the the language is deep mm-hmm. roots of the area, and so actually a lot of. So when people from the Philippines hear me speak the language, they can actually say, like, they can see that I have a vocabulary that's different. Uh-huh. It's, it's usually um, more robust. It's more expansive. Um, I grew up speaking Tagalog, so it's sort of, um, but not just Tagalog, but like the Tagalog that I can write in, mm-hmm. in like real kind of. Wow, so, so the language of that region becomes, is the basis for the national language. Yes, uh-huh. and it's also the basis for how I have approached, like even English. Like my own experience, like so, my deep um, appreciation of the expansiveness of the vocabulary in Tagalog is actually what made me really interested in learning, like you know, English. Like not only English as like a language, but actually like the, the capaciousness of the vocabulary that's in English, mm-hmm. right? But so for me, Tagalog is always the reference point. It's uh-huh. not English. So is there like a pride in growing up in that region? Is does, is it attached to any sense of you know the cultural essence of of the Philippines, mm-hmm. or not really? It's not in a sense that, I mean, I feel that the Philippines are so many different provinces and mm-hmm. a lot of provinces compete around um, the the product, right? And so, you know, like, so the thing that my grandmother would do, you know, I have family members who just, every time you travel to one province, you're supposed to bring that product, right? So, mm-hmm. so it could be sausages, a pastry, or actually not even just a pastry, like the shape of a particular type of pastry that is only found in this province, in this island in the Philippines, right? right. So like, so that, so, so for us, it's actually... Um, particular dishes like roscaldo, which is like a it's like a congee with a uh-huh. ginger and um, and fried chicken or like chicken. Um, so I used to grow up so because you know I lived so I was born in that province, but I, I grew up in Manila, right, the mm-hmm. urban center. And so then every weekend I would travel to the province. So my 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 month was actually conditioned by staying in the urban space for five days and then traveling to like the province for two and eating the food that I liked in that province and then come back to Manila. And, and is there an identity attached to one's hometown? Yes. In the Philippines, there are only a few things that condition who you are when people ask you mm-hmm. things. They ask you, first they don't, they say Tagasaanka, which means like, where are you from? They don't mean like, so even here in the, in, in the States or in, in Canada, when they say, where are you from, Tagasaanka, you say your province. 
right? right so like right, so yeah. so it's actually a provincial pride is a very strong thing, mm-hmm. right? Even in Canada, right? So you'll have um, so people get to meet other Filipinos by the associations of those provinces. Yeah. Pampanga, which is a province right beside Navasia, where I'm from. Kapangpangans, which is what they're called, are famous for being good cooks. Mm-hmm. They're also famous for being uh, malambing is the word. It means like affectionate. Uh-huh. So actually, they say when you marry someone, they'll say, "Oh, you have to marry a kapangpangan because uh-huh. they cook well and they're and, affectionate." Oh. Um, and so yeah, so I mean, so there is. I mean, I, I think for me, the pride is the language. So like mm-hmm. I. I know my Tagalog is, is, is usually deeper than a lot of others, right? Right, wow. So. But then, but you grew up in Manila. So I, I think Manila. you went to school in Manila. Yes. And yeah. So what I, was that like? Um, you know, I think Manila is really interesting, right? I, it's weird. Um, when you're there, I didn't really appreciate it until I left. <laughs> there are things that I didn't like about Manila, like the crowdedness, and I really didn't like the noise. Because Kabanatuan, where I was born, it's quiet, it's, it's calm. And then you go to the city and it's like loud. Um, but then, you know, so I left Manila when I was 17. I did not get to return until I was um, 30. Mm-hmm. And so, or in 29, almost 30. And so I distinctly remember getting out of the airport and then hearing the noise of the city. And, and I couldn't even describe how it felt. Like it felt like um, both a coming home, but also just a relief. Like a relief that I was hearing noise that I hadn't mm-hmm. heard before. Um, I really could honestly say that all of my research on the Philippines is conditioned by those 17 years of being mm-hmm. away, right? Um, I love Philippine cinema, not because I'm interested in it, but because it reminded me of a home mm-hmm. that I couldn't go home to for so long. Mm-hmm. And so when I see a film that was shot you know, and released in 1991 about urban blight in the Philippines by a major director, a lot of folks will write about it because he's a master cinematographer doing mm-hmm. all these works. But I, I'm writing about it because that's the dirt that I really missed. Mm-hmm. Like that the beauty that this director saw in the muck and trash mm-hmm. around the city, I couldn't experience it mm-hmm. for 17 years. And so that conditioned who I was as a critic. But what was the school system like in Manila? Do you go, like, is it public-private school divide? And do is the la- what's the language of instruction? Is there like a Tagalog versus English kind of um, division? What was it like going There's to school? There's definitely a yeah. divide. I mean, I think so. Um, Majority of, of course, majority of the population they go to um, public uh, public school, right? Um, and then you know the middle class and the elite go to private schools. And we're talking about major differences in economic, like in the cost, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, just a, a ballpark example: um, high school and elementary school in the Philippines when it's private, right? And usually they're run by Catholics, right? They're Catholic schools. So where I went to was a Catholic private school that was mm-hmm. a very elite school. It's, mm-hmm. called, it's called Ateneo. It's run by Jesuits. The cost for, at that time, the cost for uh, going to school for a semester um, was around equal to the annual income of like three Filipinos, let's say, in a year. Uh huh. Wow. So it's a pretty... That's a huge difference. It's a yeah. huge difference. And so, so the second thing, you know, ask where you're from. I want to go back to that. The, th- the second way Filipinos actually ask where you're from, they don't mean place, they mean school. Mm-hmm. So it's quite common for 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 um, for Filipinos in the Philippines and the diaspora to say what school mm-hmm. they went to, and that automatically tags you as a certain type of person. But you were a Catholic school boy. Yeah, I, I, grew, <laughs> I, I, fully, I was going to be a priest. I was really into like um, I was really into reading. I was really into thinking about 
the Bible, um, because you know, I you know, like Jesuits really. I think, real, you know, I mean, even though I'm not a practicing Catholic anymore, I think Jesuits really instilled in me, you know, hermeneutics. Um, in first year high school, I, you know, I, I distinctly remember going to it. So I was invited to go to a Jesuit, you know. So the Jesuit seminary is right beside the high school. It's in the middle of the university, and in the Philippines, universities are high school, elementary school, and in college mm-hmm. because they're usually one gigantic private institution, like a Jesuit school, like Ateneo, covers all of that, right? And so, it's really funny, they even call you blue-blooded, because the, the, the blue is like the color of the school, and so then if you're blue-blooded, that means you went there from preparatory school all the way to college. So I went from preparatory school all the way to high school, right? Mm-hmm. So when my first year high school, I was invited to, um, to go to the Jesuit seminary, and I went, um, I was really into it. And it's so funny, because, um, you know, Jesuits are supposed to, I mean, Catholics are supposed to be about piety and all that stuff, and then, um, and and um, and simplicity, but I I remember going to the Jesuit seminary and thinking, wow, it's air conditioned. I met a priest there actually, or a seminarian who had a habit of collecting watches, and so um, I was sort of into this. I'm like, oh, this is a sort of so it maybe my my first initial entry point into like a radical critique, right? Like being mm-hmm. like, oh, um, this is supposed to be about Catholicism and all these things they say, but why does this person have to collect watches and? Have warm showers and nice food. Think that that it's sort of and being gay, right? And being gay and growing up in an all boys school, right? right. Um, I think I came out like at the end of my elementary school, and I was one of the first five gay men who came out in high school in an all boys school in my year. So mm-hmm. I was notorious, right? So um, for, for being gay. But then it didn't. So the Catholic Church didn't feel hostile for a gay kid. Um, no, you know what I have to say. But but that's because you're protected by class privilege, right? So mm-hmm. so that I th- I felt um, I felt more unwelcome being a gay man in one year of public high school in the U.S. because I did one wow. year of public high school in the U.S. than all of my schooling in the Philippines in a, in an in all a Catholic school, school in a Catholic yeah. all boys school. Wow! But and that says something about both class privilege, right? That mm-hmm. I was protected from from that. But also we used to joke like all the the gay um, friends of mine in high school used to joke that we were overachievers and so like we, they couldn't really expel us because we were so something right about um, assumptions about um, tolerance mm-hmm. assumptions about openness that you would think a, a Catholic all boy school will not have mm-hmm. that I felt more open to me than I was in a co-educational public institution in the United States mm. right. so when did you abandon your your Dream of priesthood. Oh, I think I abandoned it the moment I stepped into that seminary. <laughs> I just felt like it was like, oh, I can't. It's not gonna be me. I mean, I think I just felt. Yeah, I didn't really know. I mean, I just felt like it was there's something else for me. Um, I always felt that, you know. I, you were accepted, but did you go and try out, or you just didn't take it up? Take, did, didn't take up the offer, I was just right? Invited, and then right. I just didn't do yeah. After yeah. that. Yeah. Uh huh. But so when did you leave? Um, I left. My mother had left for the states. Um, first, and then a year later, I followed, um, and not knowing what what was in store. Did you want to go? No, uh, I actually did yeah. not. Actually, what ended up happening was I didn't want to go, but um, and this is about class privilege again. You know, I, I grew up in a certain class status in the Philippines, and then at that last year, we were just having financial, you know, like we were just having financial difficulties, and then my mother had to move, and so it was. Um, it was actually like the year, the last year, my last year in that elite school, I was very poor. And and it was very difficult. Like the stresses mm-hmm. of class privilege, like, you know, the, the university's demands. I mean, the 
the demands of the it's a university, but the demands of the high school, right? Mm-hmm. Of, of the university's demands um, of 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 um, of students. You know, we didn't have uniforms. Like our our that our our year was the last year that they didn't institute uniforms. Mm-hmm. So there's demands around um, clothing, what you're wearing, mm-hmm. what brand mm-hmm. you're wearing. Um, I couldn't meet those, right? And I was feeling incredibly like ostracized for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided I was going to move to the States. I had all these dreams that the States is going to be different. So um, and so I said, yeah, I want to move. And I called my mother and I said, you know, I'm moving. And, and we had to do it too because then I was hoping for permanent residence in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so I had to leave by the time I was 18. So that was in California? In, it's called Beaumont. Um, and it's around an hour from L.A. Um, mm-hmm. And it's right close to Palm Springs. Okay. So it's a bit far. Mm-hmm. It was a really small town. Okay. Um, and it, it was not a lot of Filipinos. There were a lot of Hmong, Hmong students mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. They, there's like a lot of relocation of Hmong students there. Um, but yeah, it was a predominantly white space and um, and my mother was working. So, you know, she used to be a businesswoman in the, in the Philippines and now she moved to the States and she was a cook mm-hmm. at a convalescent hospital there. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's a huge adjustment because I came from Manila. I came from a particular experience, and then all of a sudden to um, to be in a city that was uh, it's not even a city to be in a place that was so far from LA. Yeah. Um, it was a difficult adjustment, actually. And it's like Manila, in some ways, much more cosmopolitan and urban than where you ended up in yeah, California, almost. right? Which maybe did that did that clash with your expectation of the U.S.? It did clash <laughs> with my expectation of the U.S. and it and it ironically forced me to work harder. I mean, it, it made me um, really think, I can't live here. You know, being accepted to and going to Riverside, California, which is really not even a major city, but feeling for the first time, oh, I'm in a city, you know, like, because it felt to me like, it was it was so different from Beaumont, um, which is where I did my undergrad, UC Riverside. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it conditioned me to, to see the world differently in a sense that I, I also became dis, uh, like uh, disenchanted with the United States, um, mm-hmm. and I think that was that was a good act to be. I mean, I look back at it now, but um, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I'm actually happy I did, right? Because mm-hmm. I, I don't have the same the same um, attachments to the United States anymore. So it was just one year in high school before then you become an undergrad. Yeah. Undergrad. Was it like the high school year? Was it like you know we watch on TV of like the terrible U.S. high school? Was it as bad? That you experience it. It was bad but, for me because I, I came in um I came in like a an international like an international person like not from the area everyone already knew each other but it was bad for me too because you know I think I share a lot of the experiences with what happens to a lot of dreamers in the United States now mm-hmm. I came in without permanent residence mm-hmm. um, I came in with a very particular experience. Um, legal status, all that stuff different from not like citizens or permanent residents. And so I had to adjust to that, right? Um, it wasn't it wasn't smooth for me, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, even getting a driver's license, which is supposed right. to be normal, took a while, took a lot of paperwork, right? All of that stuff. Um, so there were a lot of barriers in my way, mm-hmm. right? Like legally that I it, it so it actually conditioned my experience of that one year. Yeah. Right? But was there American influence in the Philippines when you were growing up? Yes, like, when you're so conditioned to love something, right? Even if you're, you're hating it at the process, you're still loving it. Like uh-huh. I think in many ways, like I, I, um, I grew up devouring television, right? Like mm-hmm. devouring U.S. television and um, American shows and American movies. And so, um, when I got to Beaumont, there was both the, um, the realization that it's not the same, but the 
the excitement that I'm finally devouring popular culture that's not so far from me because it's it's being produced in a space in which I live. Right? Like that that to me was interesting. Um, but the irony, so the I mean, the irony of all this is you know so when I went to UC Riverside, the reason I chose UC Riverside um, is that so when I applied for high school, um, it was a time when. I didn't have permanent residence, and so a lot. I share again. I shared a lot of this experience with a lot of uh, immigrants in in the U.S. My mother had a work permit. I then got a um, status right mm-hmm. through her as someone who has a work permit. So I had my own status, a dependent of a work permit holder. But that status means that you cannot get federal aid, and you cannot get any other thing. You can only go to school, and so because of these financial limitations, I could only go to the, you know, I was I had to choose a school that was close by, that didn't feel as financially expensive, and it was Riverside. And mm-hmm. so that's why I chose that school. But when I applied to all these universities, um, I couldn't get in because um, because my transcripts were all from the Philippines, mm-hmm. and, and it was like a lot, like, so even UC Riverside didn't accept me. And so then when I, um, and so I wrote, I remember writing it as like an impassioned like letter to the admissions counselor just saying, you know, I promise if you give me a, a, a shot, right, like, a, you know, something, I, I will, I'll make sure like to go all the way, right. Um, and, and, and I wanted Biomed because I thought this is my ticket to making sure that I have financial stability because I didn't know what my status was going to be. Um, little did I know that I, I'm not really into the science. And I switched an English major and it was because I had really good mentors. Um, I took like one English class and I really liked it. Recently had so much discussion around Asian American identity training. And, yeah. But at that time, you hadn't been in America for that long, right? What was your relation to Asian American studies or Asian American activism? I find this really interesting. So when I was an undergrad, I didn't know what Asian American studies was. I didn't take an Asian American studies mm-hmm. class. My first entry point to really thinking about critical race studies or ethnic studies, as we called it, right, um, is... is um, it's like Latino studies, right? So, mm-hmm. so I fell in love with a lot of the, you know, the, uh, uh, Tiffany Lopez, a professor in Riverside. She taught a lot of these, um, you know, musicals and performance studies and plays on um, on Latino performance, mm-hmm. um, and I really identified with it because of the Spanish mm-hmm. colonization. So I felt like, oh, this is they're talking about our history. Um, but it wasn't until I took a contemporary literature class, and it was not an Asian American class, but um, Training that taught it, maybe George Haggerty or another faculty member. Um, he taught us dog eaters, the novel. Right, right. Jessica has Haggerty, yes, right? Yeah. And I read it, and as you've, I've, we've talked about, Manila to me has a very significant mm. place in my heart. So when I read a novel that was about Manila during martial law, um, it opened up a world to me that I thought I didn't exist. Right, like it bridged the U.S my experience, you know, because I, I wasn't aware. I wasn't politically aware as a college kid in my first year. I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't really know what Asian American studies mm-hmm. was. Um, I already knew what LGBT studies was. I mean, mm-hmm. I was active. I, you know, I'm one of the first graduates of the LGBT studies minor in Riverside. Right. Um, yeah, probably the class, second or third class only to have had that minor in the university's history. Um, so I always knew it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Asian American studies came late. Like, it was like towards the I would say latter part of my um, mm-hmm. college career. So, what made you decide to go to grad school and become an academic, or were there other paths that you were also contemplating? You know, um, that's a really good question. So, I, I, you know, a lot of PhD folks, they want to do it because they're so passionate about something. <laughs> I actually did it because at that point, I, you know, so 
I was waiting for my green card, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I was hoping to get it through my mother, but I turned 18, and then at that point, we realized I was not going to get my green card, but I had to not, I had to maintain status in the United States, mm-hmm. or else I was going to be undocumented. And so then my my lawyer at that time said, you know, our lawyer at that time, we just talked to someone, and they said, you know, one way of to do this is to be a foreign student. So I had no intentions of being a grad student. I had no intentions of being a researcher. I had no intentions of wanting to pursue further mm-hmm. education. But I just thought the only way I could stay in the U.S. is to be a PhD student. So then I applied to PhD programs. But I also said at that point, I'm going to apply to PhD programs that are not going to be expensive just in case I don't get a scholarship. Mm-hmm. And so I applied, you know, the grad center was one of the places I applied for, and they accepted me. And, and um it's actually when I realized that, like, oh, I actually like teaching or I like these things. And um, we moved to New York City, and it was 2002, right after September 11th. Right? Like wow. It was like, yeah, uh-huh. so I was really yeah. kind of, um, I was thinking, oh, you know, like, that of course, you know, like, we're moving to New York when all these upheavals are happening in the United States. But, yeah, I moved to New York with my partner at that time who I met in college. But I think that I, that's the time I became, you know, really invested in, um, cultural studies, really invested in queer studies. Um, I went to grad school to be trained, right, like by folks mm-hmm. like Yves Sedgwick and all these folks in the field. Jose Munoz was there, David Eng was there, mm-hmm. um, Robert Reed Farr, all these people that were really important to the field, um, particularly um, queer of color critique, which was coming to the fore at that time. So so to me, that was my awakening into understanding, um, like, you know, radical queer politics. Did, like going to New York kind of reorient you in some ways? It did. It reoriented me in a couple of ways. First, it made me feel like, oh, I'm diasporic. Like, uh-huh. I, because then I really, you know, um, so I'm not surprised. All of my, my work at that time, like even like in, in graduate coursework was diasporic. Like I was thinking about Filipinos in New York or Filipino, you know, like whatever, mm-hmm. like other Asian American communities. And I was reading all this Asian American work. Um, and my dissertation actually was Asian American. Um, but, you know, I think deep inside, I really was a Philippine studies person that was interested in Asia, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. so I mean, I ended up going back right to that interest now. But I think, um, yeah, it changed it. It made me feel like I think about this park. And the other thing it, it changed in me is I made it made me more East Coast, like in a sense that I wasn't as connected to West Coast communities mm-hmm. or West Coast Asian American, which is very different actually from East Coast mm-hmm. Asian American. Right? And also you weren't able to go home, right? You yeah. were saying... Oh, yeah. So because of all these status changes, so I, st- I changed status in the U.S. so that I won't be undocumented. And I changed from... If you change status in the U.S., it's not a visa. It's just a piece of paper that says you have that status. And so I could not go home to the Philippines because then if I did, for example, as a foreign student, mm-hmm. then they will ask me where my, my family is. But my mother at that point already had U.S. citizenship because it was so long that I would have no home ties to the Philippines which makes me ineligible to renew for my foreign student status, which is why I could never go home. And so then it took me actually um, 13 years to go back to the Philippines for the first time. So uh, let's put this in context. I went back to the Philippines in 2000, for the first time again in 2008, right? Having, or like around 2009, having already written a full dissertation on Philippine things and having like done Philippine studies work, not being able to return. You know, so I had a, the status for so long that's dependent on my student visa or I mean student status or my mother. When I switched from there, I went, I got a job at Wayne State, my first job. Mm-hmm. I ended up getting a work permit 
because at that point I'm no mm-hmm. longer eligible to get a permanent residence than my mother. So I got a work permit, and it's now a visa because it's under my name, like it's actually right. under me. So then I was able to go home, and I kid you not, the first day I got that visa, I left for the Philippines. Well, that really showed just the absurdity of migration policy. Right? 13 that, years, I went through four yeah. different statuses. I went from, it's called H, H4, the dependent, to F1, foreign student, to H1B, um, which is a, a, oh no, to a work permit holder for one year only, like a temporary one. So because you're given a one year work permit after getting right. a PhD just to get the, whether you get a job or not. And then um, and then my work permit and then permanent residence. I went through five statuses. So so it's actually a lot. And then but, you know, it's really so I used to carry so much um, like anger around like mm-hmm. having to have dealt with all of these things. But, you know, it also made me a particular type of a type of scholar. Mm-hmm. So, for example, just give an example. So, when I went out in the job market, right? The job market is really stressful. It's precarious. It's it's all of these things that, and it's worse now for a lot of grad students. Mm-hmm. But I distinctly remember going to interviews in that one year that you have a work permit. That if you know if that's done, let's think about the irony, right? If that was finished, I would no longer have legal status in the U.S., which means I would have to go home to a country I have not gone home to in thirteen mm-hmm. years, right? Or, or by that point, twelve years. And be a prof- and have a degree, a PhD that I really at this point who why would I what would I do in the Philippines? I had not been there for that long, um, so that actually made me braver and bolder mm-hmm. in my interviews because I right. no longer needed to tailor what I wanted to say to what I think a committee wants to hear because mm-hmm. I th- I just had let myself say basically you know what if you're going to go to this job interview, you might not get it. Mm-hmm. But I am not going to go back to the Philippines after 13 years and not be myself. So I'm just going to say whatever I want to say in this interview. So I was very open. I was very like um, adamant about particular politics that I felt mattered to me. I mean, I ended up getting a job, but I thought it was really funny. Like I do think it, I do think that I still carry that now. I mean, I'm the same scholar now because of it. Yeah. So. And Wayne's Day, your first job. First yeah, job. Yeah. Yes. And I remember in Toronto there were. Just we were at this gathering, and there were at least three people who came out of Wayne Wednesday, State, right? Yes, we yeah, said something about Wayne State. <laughs> yeah. But so, how long were you at Wednesday? I was there for two years, three. Sorry, three years, three years. Because then you got the a Canadian postdoc. job. Oh yeah, no, that's so not in yet. Between, ah, okay, so I got a postdoc first at at USC, and then I had at Wayne State for three years. But in between that three years at Wayne State, my second year at Wayne State, I got another Mellon postdoc mm-hmm. at UCLA. Right, so there was a lot of California, yeah. you know, return to California. Yes. Yeah, and in yeah. that postdoc, I returned to the Philippines a lot. And when mm-hmm. I returned to the Philippines, um, so my first return, it was all timing. So that was the, also like one of the first times I returned to the Philippines because I got my visa. I um, I met my partner. So. Right, and your current partner, the partner you stay with, right? Right. And how did he come back with you? Did he come back no, to the US yet, with you? Yeah. Um, because he couldn't, because there's yeah. DOMA. Uh-huh. There's the right. defense against marriage, right. marriage, and so then we, um, we I couldn't sponsor him, and it was very difficult. So, well, Doma wasn't struck down until Obama, right? Yes. So then, so yeah. we had long distance because of Doma. So then, it actually what conditioned me to move to Canada. Oh, okay, so right. That's why I'm in Canada because I, I just thought Mike and I thought what what how else can we are that was my husband mm-hmm. Mike how else can we live in um how else can we live in like not have long distance relationships so we thought okay let me, let me look at the country, think about countries and Canada was an option and then we moved and that so yeah at that time was it already legalized same sex marriage same sex marriage in Canada. Canada was legal and that time same sex in 
marriage in Canada considered marriage in provinces or states and other countries where it was legal as legal in Canada. And so Mike and I, so Mike flew and visited me to the States and we got married in Connecticut. Right. And then that That became a legal document that Canada considers legal for immigration purposes. So it was just timing that they ended up having a job that allowed him to travel. And so then we petitioned for him to get a tourist visa. Yeah. And then we were able to get married. And so it's actually... I think my life in Canada now, right, is a is a combination of serendipitous like realities <laughs> that ended up being this now. It was not I mean, so I actually sometimes think, right, um, when you meet a lot of colleagues who are more straightforward in their path to grad mm-hmm. school and straightforward path to um to being a professor, I look at it both with like um, amusement also and in many ways kind of, you know, pride that I didn't have that trajectory because mm-hmm. I think um not because I believe in like you know pull yourself up by the bootstraps narratives, mm-hmm. but because I believe it conditions me as a particular type of post-colonial transnational scholar mm-hmm. that that embodies that history of the folks I write mm-hmm. about and understand my own privilege that I don't mm-hmm. have the shared experience around those folks I write about. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that yeah. that changes who you become. Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, it also changes your stakes and what you write about. And I also, but I also love the story of how. This it really shows the negotiation that one has to do when you're caught between these incommensurable kind of migration policies, yeah. um, and you're in some way maneuvering three countries. Yes, oh, um, yes, and yeah. multiple states within one country. Right. So when you move to Canada, they actually ask you to provide all of the you know like the police clearances right. in yeah. all of the states you have lived in since you were eighteen. I lived in three states, right? So I, for my, you know, I did my undergrad in California. I li- did my PhD in New York. My first job was in Michigan. So I had to basically, and then at that, and then I, w- I, I still had to go to the Philippines because you're required to actually get um, uh, uh, police clearance from your home country, right? Home country, quote unquote. <laughs> so then I ended up having to like go to the states during my filing for permanent residence in Canada and go through all of these. Um, states to get police clearances but so now you're a married couple in Toronto and yet your partner actually has gone straight from Philippines to Canada and really didn't have any experience living in the states right did did you have different experience being being in Canada right you know, yeah, it's really funny when you think about who you become as a scholar as being conditioned by everything else that's happening around you Uh, you know um, I mean, as you know now, I've published a lot of things also on Canada and Filipinos mm-hmm. in Canada. A lot of the publications, but also the thinking about this work comes out of Mike's experiences, not mine. Oh, okay. Because they come out of, you know, when people write about how difficult it is for Filipinos to move to Canada because of what they you know call Canadian experience, which is actually racism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it felt, you know, you hear about it, you think about it, you meet people, but then when you see your partner going through it, Right. Mm-hmm, right. Um, it has a very different valence for you. Like when you when you realize that, you know, Mike had a very good job in in the Philippines. He was like one of uh, you know he was the product designer or like the merchandise designer for um, for Lee Jeans, which is a major brand, American mm-hmm. brand. And then to come to Canada and not even be able to get a job as an assistant manager in an H and M, right? Um, and then the dissonance of having a partner going through that experience and then being a professor. Um, so do you think you'll stay? In Toronto? in Toronto or Canada or, you know, because you recently we heard your work on the returning. I mean, I think yeah. the Philippines is, again, home is tenuous. It always is. Mm-hmm. But home for the Philippines is home. You know, I think that... Even after all these years, that would yes. be... What, uh, uh-huh. I, I, um, what, what is... 
how does home feel? Like, like I am curious about, you know, if you've been away for so long, lived in other places longer than you have lived in Philippines, and yet you're so readily, that is where home is. Home is like, home is like a texture. Like home is like, um, it's like a feeling. Like it's not even like a feeling emotionally, it's like a touch, right? Like I think, so for me, um, home is like, you know, like, drinking a cup of coffee in a very loud coffee shop in the middle of a street in Manila. Um, uh, not only hearing the voices of people that speak Tagalog, but feeling humidity in your skin and understanding that that moment will only happen in that time and place. That to me is home. And so um, to actually have to not have that experience anywhere means that it's never going to be home, right? And so that never goes away. And so I think part of the... For me, um, you know, I really, so that when I was in Wayne State, which is, I've been open about this, it was a very depressing time for me because of the racism I experienced and the difficulty of, of being just being in a place that I felt was so hostile to me. I read this piece by Kaguro Macharia, and it's called On Quitting. And the piece is really um, important to me because um, he, he talks about what it feels like to be in uh, the U.S. Academy, um, being a professor in Baltimore, Maryland, in a research university, and wanting to just, like, feel the water of Nairobi, right? And I think like when I read that piece, I just thought that is how I feel, right? Mm -hmm. Like, And so I actually already planned when I was at Wayne State not to get tenure, that I was actually not even going to go for tenure, that I was going to go home. Mm -hmm. Like that this is not, all of my 12 years or 13 years of being in the States had built a person in me that felt to me that I was not willing to go through that experience. Mm -hmm. And so I had, Canada was on the, it wasn't in my mind, right? Mm -hmm. It was actually, I just want to go home, I wanted to feel that. And so, um, and I went home and I met my partner and then decided, let's move to Canada. <laughs> but I think like, um, but even amidst all these moves, right? That to me is a seminal moment, right? I thought, that is home, right? Like that it's a, a it's also the, the, the ability to speak Tagalog every day and not have to, um, not have to like think through like, not even just translation, but think through um, like, like be able to be to like to have the messiness of a language, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, it's it's inappropriate humor, or mm -hmm. <laughs> or, or or the the kind of lack of bi like boundaries sometimes that Filipinos mm -hmm. <laughs> the community yeah. have or my family have. Um, so those things I. And I also, I just love the way you describe home. It's like I was tearing up even. <laughs> but I think some of it, like I do feel like it's it's really lovely to actually have that sense. And then, but I'm wondering, like, I think even for me, I don't need to return to it because sometimes if I return to the place that I think evoke home for me, things have changed enough that I also feel not at home. Yeah. Um, but then, but the sense of like, you know, cause you invoke, the, all the history of the you, some migration mm -hmm. that for me in some ways I need the home that I know I can go back to but I don't have to be there <laughs> and, you know having the right documentation and the yeah. passport yeah. and the access to it almost like feels more important than having to relocate and live yes. there right I, does that resonate with you or do you feel like you will move need to move back no at some point I do think I'll be moving back but mm -hmm. I think having the status to move back so when you're a type of person that has gone through what I experienced, just multiple immigration statuses, multiple demands um, and hopes to make sure a country legalizes you and makes you validated mm -hmm. to be mobile. When you get that mobility, you have a very ambivalent relationship to it. 
Mm-hmm. So I I um so to me like it's so weird to me to go to an airport now and not have to go through immigration issues when mm-hmm. they pass by. Um and some people will think that as joy, right? They will think of it as like, oh my gosh, I'm having, you know, finally I don't have to deal with this. I think I think for me it's melancholia. Mm-hmm. It's I see it as um I see it as that um that weird presence that is conditioned 13 years of my existence in a place that I never considered home that has finally been validated because that presence is no longer there because the state has given me what I need. But it's actually that lack that has conditioned mm-hmm. who I became. Mm-hmm. So because I did not have such an easy time traveling around the country and also the world, it made me a scholar that is so vigilantly aware of what home means to me. Mm-hmm. So when that is taken away from you, it has a different meaning. That's an amazing insight. <laughs> <laughs> really, it just makes you... Yeah. And even just from what we're talking about around friendship and community, I really look forward to visiting your home. Yes, with you. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that too. Actually. Yeah, and I feel like there could be a project where we visit each other's homes. Yes, and yes. and and I feel like, like being home with someone else, yeah. with friends also create something yes. um so yeah but yeah. thank you so much for sharing all of that and yeah. <laughs> come back to vancouver and we'll go to each other's homes <laughs> i'm looking forward to it and actually learn from each other right like mm-hmm. learn from because home changes too right like mm-hmm. so that actually what i just described is great but it's it doesn't mean it's not subject to change right? mm-hmm. I think that's what it's like. thank you robert <laughs>